Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at All About Women 2020, but this intro is being recorded in my living room, as I, along with most of us right now, am self-isolating at home. I first heard the astronomer Jo Dunkley at a Writers' Festival in the UK. I'd never heard of her before, but the session was between two others I wanted to see, and so I thought I'd take the chance. And her talk was so amazing that I stalked her very, very long book signing queue afterwards to ask her if she would like to come to Sydney to talk about All About Women. Happily for all of us, she said she would. An internationally renowned academic, Jo Dunkley is Professor of Physics and Astrophysical Sciences at Princeton University. She was also part of the team that discovered the age of the universe. In this expansive discussion, Jo looks at the female astronomers whose groundbreaking work her own research is built on. These women have been overlooked in the history books and Jo wants to write them back in. The event is hosted by Ray Johnson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to All About Women's session of the Forgotten Women of Astronomy. My name is Ray Johnston. I'm the science and technology editor for NITV and SBS. I'm a huge space nerd and I am your host for this session. And today we are going to be taking a telescope to the night sky and a critical eye to our past, as we are joined by astrophysicist Professor Joe Dunkley, who will be exploring the universe while unearthing a line of stellar female astronomers who ran the risk of being consigned to the black hole of history. That's an analogy. You're going to hear plenty more analogies here today. Now, the first women to study the sky were the sovereign First Nations women of this continent, with this knowledge passed down through the generations of the oldest continuing culture on Earth, despite attempts to erase it. And it is with that sentiment that I acknowledge that we are standing on the unceded land of the Gadigal, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and I extend that respect to any of my First Nations brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles that might be in the room with us today. Now, in this session, Professor Dunkley will lead us on a fascinating talk, after which we'll be sitting down for an interview here on stage, and then it will be over to you here in the audience for your questions. And if at any point you'd like to share any of the moments from today's session on social media, please do so and use the hashtag AllAboutWomen so that we can all find awesome photos of ourselves later on and post them on our personal Twitters. Thank you. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce the internationally renowned academic, Joe Dunkley, who is Professor of Physics and Astrophysical Sciences at Princeton University. She was a part of the science team for NASA's WMAP space satellite and now works on the Atacama Cosmology Telescope the Simons Observatory and the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. I dare you to say all those really fast three times. She has been the recipient of many awards, including the Maxwell Medal, the Fowler Prize for Astronomy, the Royal Society's Rosalind Franklin Award and the Philip Loverham Prize. Please welcome her to the stage.
Thank you so much. So it is wonderful to be here today. Um, and so, so humans have been doing astronomy for millennia. As long as there have been skies to look at, people have looked up and wondered. And, and here in the Southern Hemisphere, I think this, you, the skies you have here are, are better than you know, anywhere else in the world, <laughs> up in the north. Um, um, there's this perception, though, that the people you might have heard of, the famous astronomers, famous physicists, tend to be male. We tend to have a less of a, uh, a reminder in our heads of, of whether there were any women in there, and there were. And this was something I discovered uh, increasingly as I did my own research into some of the history of astronomy. Um, I wrote a book last year on um, a popular a, a for the public on astronomy. And I discovered all these stories that I didn't really know the details of about these wonderful women and how they'd contributed and led and discovered really important things about space. And so um, my story here to today, I'm gonna tell you about some of them and what, they, what they've learned and how they've impacted our, our knowledge. So my story begins with this incredible group of women who were known as the Harvard Computers computer being a person, not a machine. Um, and they were working, this is a picture of them, um, they were working at the Harvard College Observatory in the States at the turn of the last century. And they'd been brought in to the observatory by this kind of visionary scientist, um, Edward Pickering, who had kind of run out of money and people <laughs> to study the images of the skies that they were taking and realized that you could hire a great group of women for actually not as much money at the time <laughs> um, as, the, as the male astronomers, and they could actually perhaps do a better job. Um, so he had this, these, these male astronomers at Harvard operating the telescopes and taking images of stars at the time on big photographic glass plates. They would be out all night operating telescopes. And at the time, this was thought much too hard for women to do, too, too physically strenuous to spend all night in the cold tracking stars with a, with a big telescope. So instead, they were inside. Um, and they were tasked with studying the stars and classifying them and understanding um, what the whole um, you know, beautiful, plentiful range of stars in the night sky were. They came up with a classification of stars that we still use today. Um, and, and, and even though they were sort of tasked with doing quite mundane things like tracking brightnesses and colors of stars, thousands of them, they made these great discoveries. And one of them came from this, this woman, Henrietta Swan Levitt. She had gone to the Radcliffe College as a student. Again, this was the, attached to Harvard, but it was the place you could go as a woman. You didn't get a degree, of course, but um, you could go and study. And she um, then came back to work with this group of astronomers um, uh, back at the Harvard College Observatory. And she painstakingly looked, studied these, a type of star that pulsated with brightness over time. You had to track it, over, track them over weeks or months. And you saw the brightness, or she saw the brightness of the star uh, vary, go brighter and fainter, brighter and fainter. And she made a discovery about them that actually let us figure out the scale of the whole universe. Um, and and she, she should be way more famous. So she discovered that there were these kinds of stars that the rate at which they pulsated in brightness uh, was directly related to how intrinsically bright they were, which is actually important because it lets us figure out how far away in space a star is. So we have to do astronomy just from sitting here on Earth and looking out, and it's incredibly hard to figure out where something is. 
If you only knew how bright it was, you could tell how far away it was. If something is close to you, it's going to be brighter than something that's further away. And she figured out that you could use the, the, the speed at which these stars pulse, pulsated, changed their brightness, to actually find out how bright they were. And, and, this, and this law, which now this, this relationship between like pulsating time and, and brightness, for years actually was known as the period luminosity relation. And only now it's beginning to be known as Levitt's law. Um, and this was the key that then enabled Edwin Hubble who is more famous, I'd say quite a lot more famous, um, he used her discovery to then make his own discovery that there are entire galaxies of stars beyond our own Milky Way. We live in the Milky Way. It's a disk of about 100 billion stars. And at that time, 100 years ago, no one thought there was anything more to the universe than that. And using Levitt's pulsating star discovery, Edwin Hubble was able to look out into space and discover smudges of light that he realized were actually whole galaxies of stars beyond our own. He then used it, and the astronomers at the time used it, to also discover that the universe is growing and that it began in a Big Bang many years ago. And that was only possible because of this discovery of Levitt. Um, so she is one of, certainly one of my, my heroes and should be much better known. Okay. So, she, so the discovery is so an, ex, an example. We now know that we have these galaxies. We live in this uh, a galaxy of stars that looks a little bit like this image here, but that's not our galaxy. That's someone else's galaxy. <laughs> so either there may be people in there. Who knows? Um, that is a different... It's a spiral disk of stars about 100,000 light years across. So light itself takes 100,000 years to travel from side to side swirling around and spinning around. And we now know, and we can now take a picture of this with our telescopes now, that there are lots of these out there. If I take a step even further back, this is a cluster of galaxies, full, each one of those, each one of those spots of light, a grouping of, again, about 100 billion stars all clustered together. And with these findings from Levitt and then the astronomers at the time, we now know that they're, they're out there. We now, we now think that they're about a trillion galaxies in the universe that we can observe, each of them filled with about 100 billion stars. It's a big place. Um, okay, but stars themselves. Stars are the things that most capture our eyes when we look in the night sky. But until also about 100 years ago, we didn't know what, what they were. What were they made of? Why are they bright? Why are stars shining in the night sky? but our planet itself doesn't. What's the difference between them? And why do stars have this energy? And what are they made of? A hundred years ago, astronomers thought, well, stars are probably made of the same stuff as Earth. You know, some, maybe some carbon, some iron, some of the elements that make up us and our Earth. They thought stars maybe had the same kind of composition, but they had something inside them that was producing light. Um, and so many people were trying to figure it out. The person who figured it out was this woman, Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin, who I'd, I suspect the people have not heard of. Has anyone heard of her? Yes, good, 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 good. Okay, good. <laughs> she, I have a special affinity with her as well because, I mean, she's a, she's a wonderful hero of mine, but she's also, she's, she was British, and she went to do her undergraduate degree in Cambridge University in the UK, which is where I did my undergraduate degree as well. 
And when she was there, she was captivated by this lecture she heard from Arthur Eddington um, about this expedition that he had made to watch an eclipse um, of the sun, which they used to prove that Einstein's law of general relativity was correct. Einstein's new theory of how gravity works was proved right. Um, and she went to this lecture and was captivated and wanted to continue with these studies. And again, for me, that's quite, I feel again an affinity because it was learning about the theory of relativity for me in Cambridge that kind of set me on my path as well to be a scientist. At the time, in the 1920s, Payne Kaposchkin realized that she had no future in the UK as a professional astronomer because she was a woman. And you just didn't do that in the UK at the time. But she knew about that, that group at Harvard. So she set sail to the other Cambridge, to the Cambridge in the United States, and she joined that group at the Harvard College Observatory that had, had this now long history of women doing astronomy. And when, we, when she was there, she was the, she was the first per woman to get a PhD there. Um, and during her studies, her, her investigations, she came upon this new idea. And she had this idea that actually all stars are very simple. They're just balls of hydrogen and helium gas, more or less. Maybe some subtle differences, but that was their nature. She decided from looking at the data and from understanding the theories that were around at the time that this was what stars were. Now, she wrote about this in her PhD thesis, which is a thing you write at the end of doing your studies. Um, and uh, people were a bit skeptical. And one of the leading astronomers at the time, um, Henry Norris Russell, um, who is at, who's actually at, at my current institution, Princeton University in the States, discouraged her from putting it in her, her thesis, her dissertation. He said, that's not, you know, that goes against current wisdom. Um, don't put it in, this is wrong. Of course she was right. Um, and, uh, and she was then later, you know, a few years later in the coming years, people realized that she'd actually got it right. This actually is what stars are made of. Um, but I'm always sort of curious um, how much, you know, a young woman astronomer in the field, should we trust this new idea? Should we say this goes against, you know, the current knowledge? Um, but happily, she persevered and, um, and was proved to be right. She then became, uh, you know, the first professor of astronomy um, at Harvard and the first chair of a department. So she's uh, pretty fantastic. Okay, so, so we've got stars and we've got galaxies. <laughs> so we think, we look at in the night sky, we see the stars with our eyes of the Milky Way galaxies. The ones that we can see with our eyes are all in the Milky Way, our disk of stars. Um, and here again, down in the Southern Hemisphere, you can sometimes see the band of light coming from the more, more further stars in our Milky Way, the beautiful band of white light on the sky that you can actually see more of here than up in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and if you take a telescope then, you can then see galaxies beyond our own, also full of stars. But we've now come to realize in astronomy that that's not all there is in the universe. And I've shown this picture to you here of the United States at night um, as a sort of, uh, to, to sort of make you look at it and think of it. So if we look at that image, what you see if you look down, down at the Earth from night, if you're an astronaut or someone up in, up in space, you would just see the bright lights of the city. But we know that there's something under there, right? That's not all there is, not just lights. But if we look down on the Earth, 
that we know there's a huge amount of stuff on the earth that's not sending out any light. There's the fields, the rivers, the, the, um, the, the mountains, the plains. And we've now come to realize that the universe is kind of like that too. That when we look up into the sky, the stars are only a small part of what's out there. Most of it is completely invisible. And it was this woman who really made a convincing argument that this was true. This had been shown in the 1930s by Fritz Wicke, another astronomer, that there was some evidence for this. But it was Vera Rubin, this, sorry, this woman, um, who, who really convinced, convinced the world. And so she was also, is also a wonderful astronomer, also a big hero of mine. Um, she actually applied to do um, her PhD, her graduate studies in Princeton in the late 1940s to my current institution. But in the 1940s, Princeton didn't accept women graduate students, so she had to go somewhere else. Um, luckily, she was not you know, put off. She went to Cornell University, um, and she then moved to Georgetown in the United States to follow her husband. And um, she was carrying out her studies with this challenge that I've also recently experienced of juggling young children and trying to be an astronomer at the same time. Um, and she had this incredibly complicated schedule of trying to do evening classes for her graduate studies while also looking after her two young children in the day. And these wonderful oral interviews with her about how they would arrange, you know, getting dinners for her husband and her children and, and getting to class and getting to, you know, do her studies and looking after her family. You know, these are some of the challenges of being, um, being a woman in astronomer that luckily are getting le less now that we're beginning to share all these responsibilities more. So she scientifically went out to study spinning galaxies. Okay, so I said that galaxies are big. Many of them are disks of stars, hundreds, billion stars spinning around. Our Milky Way is one of them. We're spinning around like once every 200 million years. We go all the way around, <laughs> okay? It's quite, I mean, it's a big place. And we live about halfway out from the middle of our galaxy to the edge in our solar system, sort of tucked in, orbiting around in the galaxy. She went to study how far stars in galaxies spin around. Um, because, and the thing she was trying to do with this was to, or one of the things she could do with this, is use it to weigh a galaxy. Okay, you don't have weighing scales in space. <laughs> If only we did. Um, you have to use gravity to weigh stuff. Okay, now Newton uh, told us that um, the heavier something is, the faster something will orbit around it. If we made our sun twice as heavy, we would go around it faster. It would take less than 365 days to go around the sun if we made it bigger and heavier. And so if you can work out how fast anything is really orbiting around due to gravity of something else, you can work out how heavy it is. It's a really good weighing scale. So she, with her colleague, Vera Rubin, with her colleague, Kent Ford, wanted to study exactly how stars were spinning around within galaxies to work out how fast they were going and therefore sort of how massive the galaxy was. To do that, she needed the best telescope available at the time, which was this new Palomar Observatory in California. And um, she applied to use it and noticed on the application form that it said, women are not allowed. 
this is in the 1960s, like, come on. <laughs> like, um, and uh, Vera Rubin was just, you know, thought, uh, of course, this is ridiculous, and um, applied anyway. Um, it turns out that there was a resistance to having women use the telescope because there was not a bathroom for women. Um, and Ruben, who's just awesome, um, uh, apparently cut out a paper skirt and pasted it on the symbol for a man <laughs> on the bathroom. She's like, now, now I have a bathroom. Um, so she was the first woman to ever use this huge telescope, and she used it to, to, to measure how fast galaxies or the star within galaxies were spinning around. And what she found with her colleague Kent Ford was that the stars were all spinning too fast, particularly ones at the edge of the galaxies. They were going around too fast based on how many stars you could see with the telescope. And this was true in all of the galaxies they looked at. And the interpretation of that was that the stars you could see in the galaxy were only one small fraction of all the mass that was there. That really, a galaxy of stars is a disk of stars surrounded or encompassed by an invisible kind of spherical-ish shape of invisible matter. A few times bigger across, about 10 times as heavy, invisible matter that responds to gravity. It falls into stuff, but you can't see it. It doesn't send out any light, and no telescope can, can find it or can, can observe it directly. Um, and this is a thing that had 30 years before, in the 30s, been kind of, this idea had been raised by this other guy, Fritz Wicke, and, and, and termed dark matter. And Rubin, with these observations of all of these galaxies, had found it again, but had found it now, not in one place, but everywhere she looked. And this became now part of our understanding of the universe. It's one of the biggest mysteries for us today. We now know that there's about five times as much mass in invisible stuff out there, and we do not know what it is. We think it might be a new kind of particle that we haven't discovered yet. It's absorbing so many of us in our kind of pursuits of understanding what makes up the fabric of nature. Um, and it's many thanks to, to her. Um, I'll say this now, rather, in the end. She never won a Nobel Prize. Um, many of us thought she should have. But one of the kind of recent um, happenings that happened just two months ago, three months ago, was that one of the biggest new telescopes in the, in the United, funded by the United States, but also in a big international telescope that actually was mentioned before. It's the large, it, was, it was until a few months ago called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, has just been renamed the Vera Rubin Observatory, um, which is just marvelous. <laughs> um, it'll be one of the biggest telescopes for the next decade. It's going to run for 10 years. It's eight meters in size, the, the mirror that captures the light, and it's going to scan the, the whole sky every few nights for 10 years, measuring billions of galaxies. Um, and you'll hear a lot about it, and it's the first big observatory to be named after a woman. So we're all totally thrilled by that. My last, my last person in this story, although there are many more, um, is Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Um, I was lucky enough to have her as a senior colleague at Oxford University before I moved to Princeton in the United States. And she's an inspiration to me and I think many other women in astronomy. Um, this is her a number of years ago. Um, as a graduate student, um, she discovered this weird signal coming from space 
it was a signal coming in radio waves, which is a kind of light, but it's a longer wavelength that our eyes can't see, but it's the same stuff that you can pick up with your radio. Australia is a fantastic place for measuring this stuff. There's loads of radio telescopes here in Australia. Um, and she picked up this signal uh, that was um, a signal of radio waves that was going every second, seeing a signal from space. And she didn't know what it was to begin with. Um, it actually was so regular that initially it was they, they called this, this signal uh, from some object um, LGM1, standing for Little Green Man. <laughs> oh, is, this, is this aliens? Um, it turned out to be the discovery of the most extreme kind of star in the universe. Uh, it's kind of called a neutron star. And in particular, these ones are called pulsars because they send out this pulse of light. A neutron star is truly extraordinary. Our sun itself is about 100 times bigger across than our Earth, like the size of a basketball compared to a peppercorn. Basketball, this big, sorry, <laughs> compared to peppercorn. And a neutron star is what you'd get if you squashed the whole sun into a space uh, about the size of central Sydney. Okay, that's quite squashed, right? It would be so dense that a teaspoonful of this stuff would fall right to the center of the Earth because the gravity is so intense. And then what happens at the end of a star's life when the gravity of the star just kind of pulls it into the most dense thing possible? And this whole star, this huge thing, spins around every second and sends out this pulsing light. They're so dense that if you squeeze it a bit more, it would become a black hole. Like this, these kind of stars are the very, the very end of, of what you can actually see before you just end up with a, a black hole. And, and Belle Burnell found them. Um, she, this was a huge discovery. Um, she, at the time, was not awarded the Nobel Prize. Her advisor was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, but again, history is kind of, kind of slightly recompensed for that just in the last couple of years. Two years ago, she was awarded a $3 million breakthrough prize in physics for her discovery. And there's a general awareness that really this was something that she was absolutely to take credit for. She's in, in, in true spirit to her nature. She's now using that money to support um, uh, students, uh, women and minority students, to, to study physics um, and to go into astronomy. So it's kind of an inspiration. So there are all these women. They've, they've, they've not been, I think, recognized as much as they should. But I also think that as a community, we're becoming to realize that. You know, we're making sure we call this discovery after the name of the Levitt Law. We've renamed the observatory to be the Vera Ribbon Observatory. And, you know, Justin Belbonnell has won this prize. So we've got a long way to go, but I feel like we're, we're, we're making our way uh, slowly. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. That was wonderful. I have read your book, so I knew all these stories already. You <laughs> should read it. It's great. But it's, it's so lovely to hear. And you're obviously incredibly passionate about shining a spotlight on women who historically haven't had it shone their way. So I'm going to do that a little bit to you while we're sitting here, <laughs> as uncomfortable as I know that's going to make you. You have had a, a pretty fascinating career path to get to the point where you started to focus your study on what you do now. Could, could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, so I didn't, I never thought I'd be a scientist. I, um, I, I didn't, almost didn't even go and study science at university. I loved doing maths. That was the thing I just loved doing. Um, but then I realized that I could use it to understand the world and I thought, mm, maybe I do want to 
sit, do study science and think about how I could use this. Um, but even after I'd been to university and did really enjoy it, I couldn't see myself as a scientist. And I actually had this conception that, like, misconception, that a scientist, you know, sits by themselves in a room quietly and, and, <laughs> and that it sounded a bit boring and not really me. Um, so I didn't immediately think of doing science as a career choice at all. Um, but then I actually, I, I, I missed it. I stopped doing it. I missed it. I was actually teaching maths to high school, or to, to high school students and realizing that that was the thing I enjoyed most of my day and I should actually go back and, and use that part of my brain. Yeah. So I went to study and I just, I just took off. I just discovered I love research. So what was it about the universe that really drew you to it? I think to me it's this combination of really cool ideas with great beauty. So I remember I was, after I left university, I had this backpack, I backpacked across South America. Um, and I remember a time when I was, I, I was reading a book about string theory and also seeing the most incredible stars from the deserts of Bolivia. And, and this combination of, you know, you can do this kind of beautiful science and also see this kind of physically, you know, more aesthetically beautiful outcome of it seemed like this great combination to me. It seems like, well, it is, that we wouldn't know what we know about the universe if it weren't for a whole lot of women breaking rules, which I think is awesome. <laughs> but terrible that they had to do that in the first place. As, as you've said, you know, we've come a long way, obviously. What needs to change about how science is today for women working in it today? I would say that there are two, the sort of two, there were the mul there are multiple ends to it, but I think there's t to me there's two two big things where we need to make progress. One is at the level of our young women, um, and the other is at the level of our more senior women. <laughs> okay, so so the first is getting young women to believe that they can do this and they belong and they're allowed to be doing science, and that I believe starts at you know birth. And we heard about, I mean Gina Rippon has been giving a talk about this just now that that. The, the preconceptions about what a young boy or young girl should be doing and the toys that are offered to young boys and girls, I, that's got to change, you know? Girls have to be allowed to do science. They have to have science kits. They shouldn't all be pink, right? Um, <laughs> it's, um, I, I think encouraging yeah, young women from childhood upwards that they can do science and that there's nothing why, there's no reason why boys should do it more than girls. Mm. Um, that's, that's something that will, I think, get more women into science. But I think we then have to support the women who are in there better yeah. because, um, for example, you know, we have unique challenges of you know, being mothers. And of course, there are challenges of being fathers as well in this, in this career as well. But having proper childcare, well, child but also maternity leave, um, this ability to know that people will need to balance careers with you know, having families. I think that's got to change quite a lot too. How much honesty do you think that there is about letting young women know the challenges of pursuing a career as a scientist? You know, what, what kind of barriers they're going to face that their male counterparts aren't going to? Do you, do you think that we're, you know, sometimes perhaps sugarcoating it a little bit to get them through the door? and then not supporting them once they're in there? Do you think that there's a risk of that? That's interesting, yeah, maybe. And I think what, what is true is that, and this is this idea of, of not only seeking for, you know, equality of numbers, but equality of opportunity once you're there, that yes, that's right. If you, and this is true for women and for, you know, for mi minorities, that um, 
you can't just get people in there. You've got to make it that they can succeed. So I agree with you. I'm not sure we should put people off. I, I think the job is for the senior people to make sure that they're supported rather than, you know, saying, oh, maybe don't go into it because you might have issues. I don't know. I, I think the, the job is of the people in the, in the institutions to, to remember that this is going to be more of a challenge and to make opportunities to make it better. Yeah. 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 No, that makes total sense. <laughs> Uh, you've got a real knack at being able to explain some pretty complex astronomical concepts in a way that a general audience will totally understand what you're talking about and as a consequence understand the universe more. How important is it to you that this kind of information is as accessible as possible to all sorts of different people? I, I think it's fundamental. I think, I mean, there's no point in doing research and finding out about this incredible universe and, and all, actually any kind of science, if we don't then explain it to everyone else. I mean, what's the point? You know, and, and we take, you know, we, we, we use taxpayers' money to answer these questions that we say, I need funding for this because this question is so interesting. I need to be supported to answer this question. Well, if that's true, you have to then go back and explain to the people who are funding it, everyone, why it's so important and, and why we think it kind of enriches people's understanding. So I think it's, it's part of our, it's a fundamental part of our job. What I think is not maybe so great right now is that as academics, it's a kind of unofficial part of our job. It's something that I do in my spare time. Mm. You know, I, I wrote my book you know, in the evenings and when I didn't have to do the rest of my job. And I think that um, that's something that we could maybe try and fix in our community a bit better is to allow time and space for people to, to do that. Yeah, so you're obviously working on solving a lot of mysteries and a lot of problems that are, that are occurring. How important is it for there to be diversity within the teams that are solving these problems? I know the answer, but I'm going to get you to say <laughs> yeah. it. No, it's enormously important, of course. And, and, and that's science. It does depend what you're doing. So the kind, of science, and it's a, the kind of science I do is I work with teams of maybe 100 people to, for example, put a telescope on a mountaintop in Chile, um, collect the data, analyze the data, and do all sorts of things with it. And the skills involved in doing that are so varied. Um, and it's one thing I love, actually, about what I do is that, you know, I get to work closely with someone who's got a skill that I don't have at all. You know, they can design a piece of the, the, the telescope camera that just is awe-inspiring to me. And then a different piece of it I can do because I've learned the skills to do that. So we all come together and we need not only the kind of, like, you know, clever equation-solving skills or computer coding skills. That's what I do mostly is write computer code to, to find out things. Um, we need to be able to work together and figure out how to all, you know, get this happening on schedule and with the right science and asking the right questions. And those are such varied skills that you want people to come together with all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of ideas. And I think it's been shown that, yeah, yeah. a more diverse team does better. So this is something that we know. It's something that you know. It's something that inherently makes sense. So why is there still such a resistance? Why are women still not coming into these industries feeling as welcomed as their male counterparts? Well, I think it's all about who's there already. So if you show up somewhere and 
you know, 10% of the people there are women, then you might not feel you're supposed to be there. You know, one thing I love about today is that, you know, there are more women here than, than men, and I, I never have that for, you know, <laughs> when I go to speak, it's, it's not that way around. There'll be a queue at the women's bathroom today. <laughs> exactly, yeah. that's right, I love it. Um, and, and you've got to be able to see people there who you think you can be. And I think that's where um, you've, you've got to actively then bring in, make sure that at a senior level, there are the women there um, that, that then younger people can say, yeah, okay, that's a place that I can actually be in, I can belong. Mm. Um, and you have to actively make an effort to do that, to change it. Otherwise, why would you expect someone to, to you know, show up and be part of it if they don't feel like they actually belong there? Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the analogies that you use. Mm. Where do they come from? How do you think of them? And why did you start using them? <laughs> so um, I, I started out going into schools and talking to kids and answering questions from kids about the universe. Um, and I don't do that enough, actually, at the moment. And I, I need to go back and do it again, because that's actually what makes, you know, what gives me, like, such excitement. Um, and I realized that you just have to, um, particularly with the, the universe and sizes of things, that... that um, if you sort of need to scale things down to, to make them tangible. Um, uh, and, and so this idea of like, yeah, scaling down stuff became helpful to me. Um, but I also will acknowledge that lots of this also came from, you know, NASA educators and people who really have been also, th this wasn't all, they weren't all my ideas, right? <laughs> that, that people have been trying to think about how do we explain space to to people who are not studying space yeah. for a long time. If so you read Joe's book, you'll read so much about basketball courts. I've never read so much about, I've never thought about the size of a basketball court well, as I, much. I'll tell you something that actually the, the, the standards, I will tell you that actually that I used basketball court, but actually what I had in mind is a classroom. Ah. That's actually where it came from. So in my book, I do increasingly scale down scales of the universe. So the sun and the moon, the solar system, our Milky Way, the local group of galaxies, a cluster of galaxies in different scales. And I imagine putting that into a space and then saying how big would like the sun or whatever be inside it. And that space actually, in my experience and my mind, as a classroom. Um, but of course, classrooms have all different sizes. And, and um, you know, so it, when I turned this into my book, it was less apparent that a classroom would mean the same thing mm. to tool but but I but I tell or even the room I mean to be honest again in astronomy we're very proximate so the size of a classroom is about the same size as this room <laughs> to astronomers <laughs> I know it's not uh, we kind of if it's if it's within a factor of 10 we're kind of we're kind of okay with it um so to be honest in any room that I would be in I'd probably invite you to like scale imagine scaling down the partial space into the room we're in because you want to think about it the space that you're in so that was the have you ever had to have a conversation with a flat earther? I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually haven't. I don't know how I've avoided it. But well, I, um, yeah, I, I'm sure it's coming. Um, but They're all I, on Twitter. <laughs> they'll find you. <laughs> what would you say to someone that buys into those sorts of conspiracy theories? Um, you know... Uh, you have to just go and look at the data. I mean, <laughs> science—that's what—that's the thing with science is that the data don't lie. Um, if you can make a measurement and say that the measurement shows me this, then either someone is convinced by it, or you're probably never going to convince them. Mm. 
I mean, you can obviously, it's our job as scientists to try and explain why we have made a measurement and we believe it to be true. You know, we've made a measurement that shows absolutely the Earth is round. Um, if I can explain that measurement to someone as best I can, and they're not going to change their minds about it, then I probably will never manage to change their minds about it. But um, don't waste your energy. Mm -hmm. Not worth it. I do have one more question for Joe, and after that, I will be going to questions from the audience here. So don't be shy. There's no such thing as a silly question. We're probably all thinking exactly what you're thinking. But head up to the microphones. We've got number one and number two over here. Uh, make sure that your questions are lovely and short and succinct. And I know you'd all love to tell your stories, but unfortunately, we're not going to have time for that today. So, uh, but Joe is an absolute wealth of knowledge here. So please take advantage of this moment. And if you've got any questions, head on up to the microphones while I ask you if you could have one question about the universe answered in your lifetime, what would you love to see? See, I'm greedy, so I'm having to like, filter <laughs> down. I'm like, oh, like, let me choose between my children. <laughs> dark matter, dark energy. Dark I think matter, dark energy. I think it's that one. I, I want to know, so, for some reason, the universe, the expansion of space is speeding up, and we never thought that should be happening. Nothing we really know of should make it speed up. And I would like to know why. And, and I, think that that, I, think, I think that the answer to why would probably lead us somewhere much deeper as to the nature of like space itself. And, and the basic physics that describes it. So I would want, that would be my question. I think the greatest tragedy is we're never gonna see it happen, like ourselves. Like we're, we're, we're talking about these things that are, that are happening right. in the future. That's right, but, but, but that's one of the things I discovered actually in my book as well, that, that this is what actually is wonderful about science, is that it's okay if it's in the future. <laughs> it's okay if our grandchildren figure it out and if we're long gone, because you just keep going. And I look back, at the path of science, and particularly in astronomy when I was writing, and there were all these incredible people, scientists, who said, this will happen, do this. And they died, and the next person did it. You know, um, measuring the size of our solar system, Edmund Halley realized that if you could just measure the transit of Venus across the sun, you could measure out how big the solar system is. And he knew he was gonna be dead before Venus crossed the sun. So he wrote this incredible paper saying, you know, I exhort like future scientists, future students, as future astronomers, go and measure this and you will find out how big the solar system is. And, and they did, they went it and it worked. And so I, I, I think that that's okay. If someone else does it, they'll get their joy. You know, we, we've discovered fun stuff as well and we will continue to. You have a lot more patience than I do. <laughs> <laughs> No, too. <laughs> we do have a question up here at microphone number two. What was this on? Okay. What was the most fascinating thing that you found out as a scientist? That's uh, a really good question. There's so many things. One of the things <coughs> I would say the most ex one of the most exciting moments for me as a scientist making a discovery was that when I was um, a researcher about. Uh, 10 years, a bit more than 10 years ago, I was working on this satellite, this NASA satellite called WMAP. And we were getting the data that was telling us, giving us the most accurate estimate of the age of the universe. And I happened to be the person on the team who was running the bit of computer code that spat out the number. Um, 
and just for a couple of hours, I'd run my computer code, and it spat out the number, and I was like, I know this number better than anyone else, right? And of course, then I sent it to my team, and we all were excited about it, um, or the team I was working with. But that feeling of like knowing something, and this particular thing, like how old the universe is, um, kind of uh, better, than, better than anyone in the world, was just extraordinarily exciting. That's, that's tough to beat, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a great article last week. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> what would you say to all the young girls in the audience here looking to pursue a career like yours? I would say do it. <laughs> um, I, I would, the most important thing is do what you're passionate about. And I think that, and often, I think young girls, and I had this myself, we, we, I think, stereotypically suffer more from thinking that maybe something that's too hard, that's hard is too hard for us, or we're not good enough, or someone's better than us, or we see, you know, sometimes the boys or the men around us, and we're like, oh, you, maybe you can do it better than, than, better than we can. And I had that myself, actually, as a first-year undergraduate at Cambridge. I went there, and I almost stopped doing physics, because in Cambridge at the time, there was this course, there was a science course where you could take different options of science, and physics was sort of, Everyone was like, yeah, that's the hardest one. And during my first year there, I was like, I'm not good enough for this. Like, this is too hard for me. And lots of, you know, I was, I just was kind of had, you know, had my confidence was dented by it being quite difficult. Um, and then I realized after a while that everyone else was finding it difficult too. But some people, and particularly the boys, were maybe better at hiding that. Mm. So my, my, my message is that, you know, do, do the thing you think is interesting. And if it does seem a bit hard, that's fine. Everyone else will be finding it hard too. <laughs> and, and you should just persevere. It's actually fascinating. The, the number of studies that have been done that have come back with the result that you know, women will only feel good about something if they feel like it's absolutely perfect that they've done or that they've achieved. And men are fine if it's just good enough. <laughs> and you know, I, I think that we can learn more from each other. Uh, but maybe that's one thing that we should learn from men. <laughs> <laughs> Back over at number two. Hi, um, I'm in my third year of studying astrophysics at the moment, and I'm hoping to pursue research. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm also very passionate about science communication, and as you were talking about how it's so important that people outside of the scientific community know how exciting it is. Mm. Um, so I was wondering if you had any advice for someone who wants to pursue research, but also how you can intentionally pursue science communication, because you mentioned it's kind of what you do in your off time? I think that's a really good question, and I think that you're, you're, you should certainly feel that you can do both. And I actually, when I went into my PhD, I thought I might actually go into science communication rather than research afterwards, and I realized that I liked doing the research and I wanted to continue. And then, as I said, I've ended up doing both. You can do, uh, you can end up doing both. Um, and I think it depends on making that life, making that choice for yourself and making a sort of career that, that can do it. What am I saying? It's I know lots of people in my field who have done that, but they sort of have had to decide that they want to do both and make room for it. I have a colleague in, in the United Kingdom, Chris Lintott, who presents television programs, does a lot of media work, but also has a research group. And he's kind of carved that out for himself. Another thing, yes, I've done a lot of my book writing in the evenings on my off time, but I've also, to be honest, spent quite a lot of my daytimes doing it too. And you know, universities also want that, they, val they do value it. And so I think that if you know that's what you want to do, you wrap it in from the beginning. So during my PhD, I went out, I did lots of things in schools, I, you know, took up these opportunities. Um, and so 
they, the chances do exist, but I think you'll have to, you have to sort of craft, craft a, a, a combination of things that works, but it's definitely possible. Once you are ready to pursue that, there's an organisation called Science Media Australia, and they have a database of experts online that are comfortable either talking to media in print or on radio or on television, and journalists use that resource mm. to gain access to experts for their stories. So don't be shy, sign up. Um, if you could have any other job besides astrophysics, what would you do? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I thought about that before. I think a couple of the things I'd love to do would be teach maths. I, I love teach. I mean, I love maths. And, I lo and, and for some reason, I think if I was to teach, and I, I say that actually in, in schools, right? So I teach at university now. I teach physics at university. Um, uh, somehow I think I would, in schools, choose to teach maths. I think that's, you know, it, that's almost a, the basics of what I do, even though you end up using it for, for that. Um, or I might want to work in a science museum um, and um, rather than do research, do spend all my time, you know, talking to, talking to the public about science and thinking about how to explain it and, and visualise it to people. So I'd probably still, I'd probably be doing something like that. Good question, though. Uh, and uh, if you could be at any research facility in the world, which one would you be at? Oh, <laughs> that's also a great question. So, um, well, the thing, so I would, the, the place I love to be most is actually where my telescope, I say my telescope, I work with a team of people who have like, it's not mine. <laughs> um, uh, our telescope um, is at the top of a mountain in Chile. It's in the Atacama Desert. Um, it's at a place 5,000 meters up in the, up in the, at elevation. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's the best place for doing my science, but it's also just stunning. Um, and you feel like you're at the, you know, on a different planet. And also the stars up there are extraordinary. So I would, and I've been up there a couple of times, but I haven't been there for 10 years. So I would choose to go back there. We're also building a new telescope there. Construction's just begun, so I'm desperate to go up and see it. So I'd go up there. Would you go to Mars? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very claustrophobic. <laughs> Is that the only reason? Yeah, the thought of going into like a space, anything <laughs> contained space, like up into space, no, never, never. Also, but, uh, yeah. O also, I, I res highly respect people who would want to go and explore, s explore the moon or Mars and anything, but that's not, that's not why I do what I do. <laughs> so I leave that to everyone, all the other budding astronauts and, and explorers to go and do that. I love the range of answers I get to that question when I'm asking people that you know, work in space in any way whatsoever. It's either like, yes, sign me up, get me over there immediately, or no, <laughs> no chance, not a chance. I'm not getting on anything that Elon Musk has built. <laughs> Got another question at number one. <laughs> Hi, thanks for a, a very interesting talk. Um, I have two small children mm. and I am embarking on my uh, second career by beginning a, an undergraduate degree and hope to go into astronomy and oh, research. Cool. What advice can you give me or anyone else in my situation to um, 
help me along the way and make it work? <laughs> oh, that's, such a, that's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, you've got, so if you've got young children, you need to balance being able to do your studies and, and your family. And, and they're both, you know, they're both important and one can't be neglected. For, well, you, can, you, you certainly can't neglect the children for the studies. <laughs> the other way around, maybe, but you don't want to. Um, um, I think that uh, giving yourself the realization that maybe you won't work 16-hour days, but that you don't need to, is a really important thing to know. There's some perceptions in science that, that you can only get success if you sort of work constantly and don't have a family and don't take weekends off and don't take evenings off. I think that's nonsense. And I think knowing that, that, that you can work, for example, for fewer hours, but still be a success, um, is really important. But there are other practicalities of the fact that most th there's lots of support these days for taking children to conferences, taking them to um, you know, visit other places and have, have childcare support, for example, that will enable you hopefully to go and do things with a family. Um, so um, I, think that that's, I think that's getting better, but I think that that does, that does exist more. But I do think this back to this thing of, you know, you can, you can be a great success by being working in a focused, efficient way rather than having to necessarily work, you know, every hour, every minute of the day. That's, I would say, really important. But I wish you best of luck. You become really unproductive after a certain period of time. Anyway, I find as soon as the sun sets, I'm done. I cannot do any more work after <laughs> that. I'm, I'm a solar-powered human, I believe. <laughs> Another question here. Hi. Um, thinking about the science fiction world and how ideas can become reality through innovation, you know, like phone, mobile phones, tablets, mm. AI, etc. How much does uh, fiction or imagination drive your research? That's a really good question. So I think that it, in, in science and science research, creativity is really important because you're going to have you have to think up different different answers to things. So um, in terms of, so I guess I'll be answering a little bit more broadly, the ability to think up, think out of the box, think of something, think of some new idea. It might be a new theory for, you know, what could this invisible dark matter be? Or even just how should I try and solve this problem in a practical sense? Um, thinking more broadly and having creative ideas, I think makes a better scientist. Um, so, in a connected way, I think having taking time, if you, you know, taking time to explore one's creativity while also being a scientist can then unlock ideas that you might not have had otherwise. So that might be by writing, or you know, I felt myself actually writing a book. I found actually was made me think of some ideas for my research that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and so taking that, and that, so for someone else that might be painting or doing something, whatever it is that that's kind of lets their creativity out, I think does make for a better scientist. Yeah, thanks. We've got time for one more question. Coronavirus has rather taken over the panic market here at the moment. Mm. But before that, in Australia, as in many countries, the reality of, for us, bushfires, but yeah. sort of the force of climate change mm. has begun to penetrate people's heads in a very yes. personal way. And um, I think make many people scared about the future of our whole civilization. My question is a personal one mm. to you, Joe. Knowing the size and scale and beauty 
and distance and grandeur of the universe, does that, on a scale of it makes humankind even more important, or there are more, it is great, does it make you calm? Where do you sit emotionally on that scale? That's a really good, lovely question. So, uh, so certainly for me, knowing the bigger place, knowing this bigger home we're part of, what's out there, I think I find it enriching that we are we are this little planet, part of something vast. Um, but the vastness also reminds me that we've got nowhere else to go. You know, we can't. This idea that maybe we could go and live on a different planet—it's nonsense. You know, this is our this is the place we've got. This is the home we have. Um, we have to protect it. So I think it's um, and, and but even and. But I, to me, yeah, it's, it feels more beautiful in the context of this bigger place, not less beautiful. So I think it's, you know, um, even more worth protecting in this knowledge of what we're part of something bigger. I definitely don't think it should be that, oh, it's just a little part of something bigger. We can just, you know, ruin it and move on. That's not our option as humans to do that. Uh, jo will be signing her book that you should absolutely grab a copy of in the foyer. Uh, it's called Our Universe, An Astronomer's Guide, and it will absolutely explain everything to you in a wonderful way that you'll be able to all comprehend, which is possibly the best thing that you can ever do in science communication, <laughs> so thank you. But please join me in thanking Jo for her insights today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas of the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.